Last week, we talked about a parable. We talked about the parable of the sower. And um, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I remember when I was uh, uh, in pastoral training, there was one pastor that, uh, I don't know if, if it was his quote or if he was quoting somebody else, but the quote was, no one should ever preach the parables unless they've been in ministry for at least 30 years. Safe to say I busted that one wide open, but but I am pushing 20 years here. I don't know, I'm 17, 18, something like that. So it's interesting. You know, I don't think that's a hard and fast rule, obviously. But I think there is something to it. We've talked about this here before. You know, there's something about just having lived enough decades that you can start to see the panorama of life. You can start to see the, the forest for the trees. You know, when you're young, you're just kind of moving from tree to tree to tree, and you're so bogged down in details and everything. Not that that doesn't still happen, but there is something that comes with just having lived long enough, watching children grow up, watching movie stars get old and fall down the other side of their career, watching things change. There's something about that that just alters you alters your perspective, gives you this, this extra perspective. And I think that is something that really works with the parables especially. I think it works just in, in general. But you get this panorama, you get this perspective from time, and it allows you to sort of back up. It allows you to not to get so bogged down in details. You know, when it comes to the, uh, the parables especially, but, I mean, just scriptural interpretation in general, everyone is so obsessed Everyone is so OCD about every little detail, or as, like to, as I like to say, CDO, because then it's in alphabetical order, as it should be, right? Come on, think about it for a second. Yeah, let me get there. But we're all fighting over these details. We're all fighting about every little interpretation, every little bit. And when it comes to the sower, man, there's no exception. We talked about that last week, but even the title... Is, is a matter of debate. Is it the parable of the sower or is it the parable of the four soils? You know, we can't even decide on that. What is really the, 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 the meaning of the sower? What is the meaning of the seed? What's the meaning of the beaten path, the birds, the, the rocks, the thorns? Each one of those details in Jesus' story has multiple interpretations of what it means or what it could mean. And, of course, who are the four soils, you know? And the way that the church has normally interpreted that is that there are four different types of people who hear the word differently, and you break those down into believers and unbelievers. It's us and them. And that's the easier part. Then Jesus gets into the second part where he's interpreting it, and he tells us that you know those who have are going to get more, and those who don't have, even what they have is going to be taken away from them. And why do I speak in parables? Because, you know, then those who don't see aren't going to see, and those who don't hear aren't going to hear. And it sounds exclusive. It sounds condescending. It sounds like we're, he's, he's shelving off whole sets of people, that the decision has already been made who the winners and the losers are. And we're trying to sort through all of this difficulty and trying to understand what is Jesus really talking about, you know? Matthew 13 where this comes from, or the, the, the chapter right before it, is an entire chapter of kingdom stories. It's just 
The kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like. All these parables. And we're talking about the tares. We're talking about the mustard seed. We're talking about the leaven. We're talking about the treasure left in the field and the pearl of great price and the dragnet. All these different images that are trying to get across one thing. What is this kingdom? What is it like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What is it like to enter into this kingdom? And he's using picture after picture and word after word trying to get this point across. And here's the thing. When you have more time under your belt, when you've lived longer, you can get to the point where you're not obsessing so much over the details. You can get to the point where... You're just not sweating over these small stuff anymore. Um, you're not looking for an answer for every single question. And there's a humility that starts to set in. You know, have, have you ever had the experience that the more you know, the, the less you know you know? I mean, there's a humility that sets in with time, which just lets you know that, you know, the arrogance of youth doesn't carry through. We realize we don't have answers. We can't have answers. We can't answer every question. And not only that, we're not supposed to. Parables don't function this way. That's not the point of a parable, to answer every detail, every question in your mind. In fact, the point of a parable is to stop that thought process in its tracks, to move you from the left brain to the right brain to move you over into that creative space, that open space, that space that operates at a completely different plane. Here, Jesus is trying to give us the overall impression of kingdom, what it means, how it's experienced, and most importantly, how we enter it. And where we came away at the end of it was the most important thing that we could know about the the sower and the four soils is that we are all four soils at the same time. It's not an us and them. It's not even an exterior thing, although it does exist on that level. But the import, what Jesus is really driving, is that we have all of those four soils. We still have strongholds. We still have unhealed traumas. We still have hard-headed you know, understandings and, and beliefs and things that we were taught that we're clinging on to for dear life. And those things are keeping us from understanding the word at a deeper level. Jesus' favorite line, he who has ears, let him hear. She who has ears, let her hear too. All right? But that's it. Can we grow these new ears? Can we hear these stories from a whole different point of view? Can we just start to back up and let go a little bit? See something more overall. You remember the movie When Harry Met Sally? How many of you know the movie Harry Met Sally? Okay, good. I wanted to read just a little bit of, a, of just the last scene because I think it's, it's going to make my point so well. And I'm going to read a little more than, uh, than I need to to make my point, but it's just so much fun. And uh, I got the mic, so you're going to have to listen. This is right at the end of the movie. If you don't know the movie or don't quite remember, it's a man and a woman who met early in college driving cross-country to New York, and uh, they didn't like each other. Twelve years later, they have this on-and-off-again friendship that just follows them through their lives and their relationships. And then at the, sort of toward the end of the movie, they finally get together, and then it blows up disastrously. And they are at odds with each other, and they haven't spoken. And then on New Year's Eve, they meet up again in a hall 
you know, where all the party is going on, and uh, they have this exchange. Harry walks in and he says, I've been doing a lot of thinking, and the thing is, I love you. What? I love you. How do you expect me to respond to this? How about you love me too? How about I'm leaving? (laughs) Doesn't what I said mean anything to you? I'm sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here and tell me you love me and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. Well, how about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. Kind of sounds like you, Nina. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to get a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend the day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. And now by here she's crying, right? And she says, you see, that is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. I hate you. <laughs> by now it's, it has struck midnight, right? And the band starts up and the balloons and the confetti come down and the streamers and everything. And um, then they kiss, of course, and the music swells and you're hearing Auld Lang Syne in the background and it's just beautiful, touching scene. How do you get out of a scene like that? You can't just leave it there. That's too schmaltzy, too diabetic, you know, just to leave that, that scene right there at that point. And they have the perfect way, you know. They, they break the kiss, and Harry turns to her and completely drops the mood, and he says, because remember, Auld Lang Syne is playing. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintances be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? Or does it mean if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot? And she's wiping the tears off her face. And she says, well, maybe it just means we should remember that we forgot them or something. Anyway, it's about old friends. Fade to black. Perfect way out. But see, I, see, I think Sally's got it right. She's got it right. We can get lost in the details. We can get lost in trying to figure out every little detail and trying to figure out that old Scottish English and what all those words mean and how it is constructed. And we can need a degree, probably, to figure out all that. But Sally has it right. Because if you just let your eyes go a little bit blurry, just take in the room as a whole and the streamers are coming down, and the confetti, and the balloons, and the bands playing, and people are kissing, and singing, and dancing, and just take it all in. Just immerse yourself into that, and that feeling of reconciliation, that feeling of reconnection. You can still feel the kiss on your lips. It's just about old friends. That's the most important part. If you don't take anything else away from a song like that, Take that, because it's all you need. That is just enough for us, if we will let it be just enough for us. So Wednesday night in the book study, we tackled another parable. 
And if you think the parable of the sower was difficult, where do you get a load of this one? (laughs) We left everybody less than satisfied that night, didn't we? Because this is one of the more difficult parables that, that Jesus ever delivered. And if you're not familiar with it, it's the one that is the parable of the unjust steward. How many of you know that one? Okay, well, then you're going to hear it here first. Take a look at Luke 16, starting right at verse 1. I'm just going to read this through and uh, just kind of let it wash over you and see what you think. Now, he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. What the heck is going on here? This is wrong on so many levels, isn't it? And then he's not done yet. At verse 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I love that line. It's just, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Hmm. I almost don't know where to start with this. You know, this last part after verse 10, if you just read that part, there's some, there's some good takeaways there, right? But what about the rest of it? What is going on with this? Where do we begin? All of these wrongs piled upon another. This, this steward takes one wrong, he piles on a worse wrong, you know, and then he's praised by the rich man, his own boss, and by Jesus, who then tells the disciples to do the same what do we do with something like this? You know? Now, what we're doing and what you're probably doing right now is to go into decode mode, right? You're thinking, okay, what do we do? We're going into OCD mode right now. And the first thing we probably want to do is label all the characters, right? Okay, what does the rich man represent? Is that God? And who does the steward represent? Is that us? Who, what, how does this all fit together? What's going on? We want to crack this code. You know, we want to figure this whole thing out. But what if there's no code? What if there's really nothing to crack? What if the details and the situations of this and all parables are meant just to shock us awake, to present a scenario that is just different enough 
just tweaks us enough to wake us up, to show us that we're hearing something that we really haven't been tuned to be able to hear. To break our line of thinking, even the thinking that right now we're trying to decode and trying to figure out what all of this means, to stop that line of thought, to disturb any limiting traditions, teachings that are residing in us, to break up the soil for new seed, new thought. See, what we need to do right now is to step back and see the broader contours of the story. Get the overarching message that Jesus is trying to get across because that's going to be the truth. That's going to be the peace that we really need. Like something about old friends, right? I thought before we tackle this one, let's take an easier one first and see if we can get the principle behind it and then we'll work backwards. And so this one is the parable of the unjust judge. I don't know if you've heard this one before, but now we're at Luke 18. Again, starting at verse 1. Now Jesus was telling them a parable to show that at all times they, the disciples, ought to pray and not to lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And he will delay long, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So, again, we have the situation where we have a judge, and the technical term for him is he's a jerk, right? But he does the right thing for the wrong reasons. And Jesus is trying to make a point here. Now, let's take the context. What's the context that Jesus is laying out before, or the evangelist lays out before Jesus gives this parable? He was talking to them about not losing hope. He was talking to them about continuing to pray, continuing to stay connected to God, even though their circumstances were really difficult. And they obviously were. We don't know the situation, but they were difficult. And he says, don't lose hope. Keep praying. So he gives them this this strange story, though. And again, we go into decode mode. Who is the judge? Is the judge God? Are are we the widow again? We want to try to figure out and, and, and work this out somehow. You know, how could it be? How could we say that the judge is God? Is God indifferent to us? Is he indifferent to our situations? Does God need to be nagged in order to hear our prayers? In fact, Jesus says exactly the opposite at Matthew 6, doesn't he? When he's giving us the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he say, hey, don't be like the Gentiles who use all of these words and repetitious phrases. He says, bring your prayer down. You know, you don't need to use all these words to get God to hear you. In fact, God knows what you need before you even ask him. So we've got to think about these things. We've got to broaden the scope. We've got to move back and see the contours, not only of the story, not only of the chapter, not of the book, but of the entire New Testament, of the entire Bible, because any interpretation we come up with can't violate another truth that's been given to us. And so again, it's pulling back, not getting so lost in the trees. 
In fact, this whole argument, this whole story, is what the rabbis called Kalve Chomer. Kalve Chomer literally means light and heavy. It was a, a traditional rabbinical teaching technique or a way of making an argument. It means light and heavy. And so the idea is, if something is true in a light or small instance, then it's even more true in a heavy instance or a big instance. And Jesus uses this argument over and over again as part of his teaching technique as well. Remember when he said, consider the birds of the air? You know, look, they don't, they don't toil, they don't store up in, in barns, and yet my, my father feeds them. How much more valuable are you than they? That is the classic Chomer argument. How much more is the dead giveaway? You don't always get that, but if you get that, it's Chomer. So, got the birds, that's the light. How much more? You, that's the heavy. He talks about the grass of the field. Look how it's clothed. Solomon in all his splendor didn't have clothing like this. How much more will your Father in heaven clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is doing the same thing here. Right? Here you have a judge, an unrighteous judge, someone who is doing something for the wrong reason. How much more will your Father in heaven care for you? If you don't get anything out of the story, take this one kernel with you, and you can find it at Matthew 7.11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Kavachomer, right? But that's the kernel of what's going on here. Jesus is just trying to give a warm encouragement He's trying to instill in his people, in his disciples, in his friends, this underlying belief, this conviction that no matter how bad things get, God is right here, as close as your next breath. Don't drop your connection with him because it's difficult. Stay connected. And then he tells this strange story that kind of breaks them, rattles them, brings them right out of of everything that they are thinking about, all of the stuff that's spinning in their head. Think about you when you have something that's really eating away. Are you really present? Are you able to break through any of that? Here's Jesus breaking them through with a strange story that's giving them this really hopeful message. And even if we say that, we understand that, and that this is the kernel of the truth, then what do we do? We go right back into detail mode, right back into the, putting our face against the tree and saying, well, he said right there that if we pray, God is not going to delay in giving me what I need in my prayer, and how long is that going to take? You know, and then we're right back to missing the point. The prayer that Jesus is talking about is the connection with the Father. It's not just the supplication. It's not just the change of circumstances that you want or need. Don't break the connection because everything will be all right ultimately in the end, even if it's not changing on our timetable. And again, we need to pull back. What is Jesus trying to do here? What is he trying to give his people? So let's go back to the unjust steward. Now, the rich man is not going to be God, and the steward is not going to be us. We need to pull back again from the details and start to get the lay of the land. Let's get the context again. Let's find out what's going on here. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers, but he knows that the Pharisees and the scribes are listening, 
And they're not listening in a neutral way. They are angry. This is late in the game. You know, this is, this is Luke 16. This is late in the game. The Pharisees have already gotten to the point where they're realizing they're going to have to kill this guy. They're going to have to get him gone because he is chipping away at the foundation and the source of their power. And so they are listening, but they're listening to try to trip him up. They're listening for evidence that they can use against him. And so he's speaking to his disciples, but he knows that they are listening. It comes right in the middle of a series of five or six chapters in Luke, all strung together of Jesus' teaching with the Pharisees and the disciples present. And so there's this ongoing controversy. And many of the stories and the teachings that Jesus gives is pointed. And it's double-edged. That it's teaching the people that are open to it. And it's also slashing away at the people who are not. Because he has to make that contrast between what they are doing for power and and control over the people and what Jesus is trying to do to liberate the people, to take out the middleman. All right? So there's this section of chapters here in which he's doing all of this. Chapter 15, the chapter just before, is the whole chapter is just three parables. It's the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep first, the lost coin, and then the lost son that we typically call the prodigal son which really should be when mom, when dad acts like mom. That would be a better title for it. But we've got three parables there. And what are those parables doing? You know, you've got the Pharisees who are stuck because they are, at, right at the top of, of chapter 15, they're saying, what are you doing eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners? See, now to a Pharisee following the law and following their own tradition, what does the name Pharisee even mean? Did you know that? Pharisoi in, in, in Greek, but in the Hebrew, it simply means separated ones. These are the, the, the clan, the brotherhood that separated themselves from anything that they saw as illegal, anything that they saw as unlawful, unpure. These are the ones who would cross the street so that their own robes didn't brush against someone who stood outside the law, a sinner in their eyes because then they would be ritually unclean according to their own rules and would have to go through this ritual cleaning again, this purification rite. They're the separated ones. They are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with the sinners on and on again, but that's the context for all of chapter 15. And so Jesus gives us these three beautiful parables. The one about the hundred sheep and one gets lost and he leaves in 99 to go find the one and brings it back and he's so joyful for finding the one lost sheep. That, that he throws a party. And then a woman who has a coin, and she loses it, and she ransacks her house, everything she can look over, and she finds the coin, and she's so excited, she calls over all her neighbors, and she has a party. Do you see how Jesus is using these parables? Not detail by detail in any kind of, 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 of you know, legal or, or what, linguistic way, but just trying to get the sense, get the sense of what it's like for one person no matter who they are, how much they've strayed or become lost, to return to the fold. And then, of course, the the prodigal son, probably the pinnacle of Jesus' expression of how God feels about every single one of us, no matter how impure, how dirty, how far off track we think we've gotten. Nothing ever changes in terms of God's relationship. Three parables addressing that. Then we move to chapter 16. These are parables 
not just the one that we're considering, which is the first one, but another series of parables and teachings that are contrasting the Pharisees' legal and righteousness, this, this self-righteousness based on the law that they themselves wrote over a period of 300 years versus simple kingdom grace, mercy and compassion, as opposed to this strict following of the law that made them feel righteous and accepted by God as opposed to all those other people, right? And so Jesus, this is the context that Jesus is speaking in. He's trying to teach his disciples the balance between the law and mercy and grace and compassion. How do we balance those two? Remember he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. How is the law going to be fulfilled? It's going to be fulfilled in mercy and grace and compassion. He has said so over and over again. He's quoted Old Testament prophets to make that point. We don't throw the law away. We still follow the law. But the law becomes perfected in our hearts when it transforms us so that our every action is motivated not by legal obedience, but by the mercy and compassion that is generated in the connection with whoever happens to be standing in our path. He's trying to get this balance across to them. How is this going to work? I mean, the parable itself, you heard it. It almost defies any sort of rational explanation. And there are so many competing interpretations. Some say that the rich man, the master, was corrupt anyway, and all all his wealth was, was corrupt. And so that the unrighteous servant, the manager, was justified in stealing from him. I suppose, both before and after he was found out. There's some that say the unrighteous uh, steward would have repaid the difference, the discount that he was giving his creditors. He would have paid that back in himself. Doesn't support anywhere there, but it, it kind of helps to make the thing a little more palatable from our own ethical standpoint, right? You know, there are others that say, oh, no, he just cooked the books. You know, he just wrote that they got paid in full, but he didn't really get paid in full. Everybody has an idea. They're trying, working so hard to make this parable fit what our ethics and our morality demands, rather than let the parable do what it was designed to do, which is to challenge, shatter what we think we know in order to get something brand new across. Many debate over the meaning, most of the debate of this, of this uh, parable is over the meaning of unrighteous mammon. What does that even mean? Now, most scholars are, are at least unified in what mammon means. Mammon is usually translated as wealth, right? And we think of it as, as physical wealth, as money, or something that has some kind of, of you know, financial value placed to it. But the meaning goes deeper than that, both in the Greek and in the Aramaic. Mamonas or Mamona was the name of a Canaanite deity. It was the goddess of wealth, but became known as the goddess of greed or avarice. And so it was more than just money, because money or wealth is neutral. It doesn't have any kind of moral valence. You know, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. You know, it's like that in Paul. Same thing here. And so Mamona was the goddess of avarice and greed. What Mammon or Mamona had come to be understood in the way that it was used by the people at this time was that mammon was anything that you piled up in your life, anything that you accumulated in your life that came to define you. That's an important distinction. 
It's what you're identified with. It's what you're clinging to. It's what you trust in. It's where you get your sense of not only identity, but your sense of security from. This was the idea of mammon. And scholars are pretty much unified on that understanding. But when it comes to unrighteous mammon, it's, a, it's kind of a street fight. All right? Most commonly, the idea is that unrighteous mammon is mammon that was unrighteously obtained. Think about it. It was stolen. It was the result of unfair lending practices, usury. It was the result of unfair rental practices, which was rampant in the ancient world, for, for rich men to buy up tracts of land and housing more than they could ever use, which is also prescribed, prohibited in the Old Testament. They'd buy up these, these tracts of land, and then they would rent them out to the poor. And if they couldn't pay, how did you pay in the, in, the first, in the first century? These poor people, they didn't pay with money. They were paying with their crops. What if their crops failed? What if they didn't get as much as they needed? Then they, he would either take the property back and evict them or add it to their, take all the crops so that they had no sustenance and then add the bill to the next crop season. I mean, it was, that was another way of, of unfairly, unrighteously, getting your mammon. There was also political graft, cozying up to the Romans, taking money, taking bribes, anything that you can think of. Anything that was unrighteous or corrupt in the obtaining, that was considered unrighteous mammon. But there's another Hebrew understanding that I think is much more important. And it's interesting that I don't hear this one as often. Not that unrighteous mammon was unrighteously obtained, but that unrighteous mammon was wealth that was unrighteously retained. Think about the difference between that for a second. It's not about the fact that you are wealthy, the fact that you have money, but that you don't let those riches flow out to the people who need them. You dam up the stream, you put everything in banks and and in silos, and you don't let it go out. The way that was the ideal lifestyle for Israel, from the prophets on, was this notion of daily bread, which Jesus says plainly in the Lord's Prayer. This idea that we had bread just for the day, that we had just enough for the day, and everything else could flow through us. That's the idea of it. We don't damn things up. We get what we need. We trust the source will keep flowing, and then we let it flow to the people who need it. It's, it's stated perfectly at Psalm 30. See if I can find that. Psalm 30, um, verses 8 to 9. Take a listen. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me the food. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I be not full and deny you and say, Who is this Lord? Or that I be not in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you catch what they're saying here? I don't want to have so much or be so full that I have a sense of my own independence, that my sustenance comes from what I have in my barns. Because then I deny you, Lord. Who are you? I have my, I have my stuff. I don't need you anymore. Or that I'm in so in want that I steal and do the things that would profane the name of God by taking from a neighbor just enough. Daily bread. That's the idea. So any mammon that was held and accumulated and wasn't allowed to flow was considered the unrighteous mammon. And so the steward here is, like the judge before him in the other parable, is doing the right thing for the wrong reason. 
It's a self-centered reason. But if the rich man was corrupt, if the rich man, even if he wasn't corrupt, if he had all of this wealth that was not flowing to the people who needed it, this is what the steward was doing. He was letting it flow. He was giving discounts that weren't going to hurt the manager. He had enough. He had accumulated more than enough. But he was doing it for the wrong reasons. Right? Jesus admits the wisdom of this. The manager, who is the one who is getting shafted here, he admits the shrewdness of it and commends him for it. But Jesus commends the servant in a very interesting way. He puts it in a very narrow context. He says, the sons of this age, of this age, are more shrewd in relation to their kind. Okay? He is taking this action and putting it in a very narrow context. It's about this age. It's about this type of people. As they're working this world system, as they're working in this financial area, these men know the game. They know the ropes. And they operate much more shrewdly than do the sons of light. This is what he's trying to get across to them. They will receive, make friends by means of the unrighteous mammon. So when it is failing, when it fails or you fail, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He's changing the context now. It's not about external systems or world systems. Now it's inward systems. It's spiritual systems. It's between God and us. So he's taking two systems and comparing and contrasting them. This is the way it works in the world. These are the guys who are shrewd, much more shrewd than we are, because our ethics wouldn't even allow us to do that. But do the same thing over here in spiritual matters. Let your resources flow to those who need them so that you will have a soft landing when you need it into the eternal dwelling places. Because what does Jesus say? If you do this to the least of these, you're doing it to me. He makes that connection. But we have to make the switch in context that Jesus is trying to move us back and forth. And then when you read at verse 10 again, this wrap-up that he does, all of them are kalehomer arguments, aren't they? He was faithful in little things, is faithful faithful also in much. He was unrighteous in little things, unrighteous also in much. Light and heavy, light and heavy. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? The true riches, of course, are kingdom itself, the spiritual connection, light and heavy. And if you have not been faithful in the use of, of that use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Each one of those. Trying to get that truth across in a way that we can understand. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and will despise the other. And so, if you didn't get any other message from all of that, get this one thing, okay? And there it is at Matthew 6, starting at verse 9, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the thrust of the whole thing. Did we really have to go through all of that to get to that? Yeah! 
kind of fun in a way. But if you just give the moral of the story, if you just give the punchline, and you haven't actually taken the thought journey, you actually haven't moved through all this, it hasn't tweaked you and outraged you and disturbed you and caused you to have to think through it, do you think that truth is going to be thrust as deep a conviction as it will be when you have? See, this is what parables do. It's not a code to be cracked. It's a journey to be taken. And we need to realize that there are going to be questions and dots that just don't quite connect. And we've got to be okay with that. Can we be okay with that? Can we just let that go? Well, for some of you, not so much, I suppose. I'm sure there are so many questions and a lot of maybe unsatisfied feelings still lying on the table. So here's the thing. Let them lie. Get to the crux. Get to the heart of the matter. The whole point is for us to move from the legalism of the Pharisees, the legalism that is so ingrained into each one of us, the left brain thinking that everything has to line up, everything has to have a resolution, and just move over to the free, flowing grace of kingdom, of just somehow being immersed in the process. And that all starts right now with these parables themselves, understood this way, to step out of OCD mode, out of judgment mode, out of comparing and contrasting and constantly trying to figure things out and just immerse. To be okay leaning into the shock and the awe and the outrage and the disturbance and not try frantically to try to make it all go away to try to balance it and get back into equilibrium because you, can't ju- you just can't stand that feeling of not knowing, that feeling of disturbance. Let it do its work. Yeah. Pretend you've got 30 years under your belt <laughs> and that you can see the panorama of this. You can see the contours of it. You can see how it connects and have the humility to admit we just aren't going to understand it all. We're not going to have it all figured out and it doesn't matter doesn't matter. And when we're finally finished asking all of our specific questions, when we finally lay down the need to have it all figured out, all tied up with a bow and resolved, then we can finally just say, what does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. (laughs) And then we can get to the point where we just relish the kiss, we immerse ourselves back in the reconnection, the reconciliation, the embrace, right? And realize that it's just about old friends and that will be just enough for us. Let's pray. Father, teach us how to let moments be just enough for us. If we could just start there, Lord. Letting the moment be enough. Stopping the mechanism of comparing and contrasting and stepping outside of moments. But just let them flow in and through us. Help us to just be more present. Help us to see that our contentment and our intimate relationships are not based on figuring things out but in allowing ourselves to submit to them, to be covered by them, to be transparent and vulnerable within them, 
Help us to change our whole mode and way of dealing with our moments in our lives and our relationships and with you, Father. Father, we love you. Help us to see that our love isn't based on what we think it is and allow your word to move us wherever we need to go. Thank you, Lord, once again for everything that you've given us, all we need to make this moment perfect. Never let us forget that we can only love, we can only do any of this because you did it first to our benefit in your mercy and grace and in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.